Well, it's such a pleasure to be with you all tonight. I'm so glad you are here. And just a quick word of update. Yes, I'm having surgery on an ACL in a couple weeks, and I am looking forward to getting it over with. <laughs> um, I was just thinking about this. Last time I was here, we were uh, saying goodbye to Poppy, or Dad Gray, as you might know him. And uh, just a quick sort of update on us. We've, ever since then, it's sort of been a a time of transition for both Natalie and I. Of course, we welcomed Lydia Ann into the world on January 29th, so that was a big transition for us. <laughs> um, and then I was transitioned into a church and then quickly transitioned out of it by the Lord, and uh, so it's just been a, an eventful couple months in, of 2017 so far, but I'm so thankful for what God is teaching me about myself and also what God is teaching me about him as well, just learning a lot and learning to be content and to be humble, which is a lifelong thing I'm sure you are familiar with. Um, But that leads me to uh, this that I wanted to say is that I love this church. I love coming back here. I always love seeing everyone here. This church is like a family to me growing up here. And uh, I always enjoy coming and trying to see if I can steal my dad's pulpit for at least one time. So, And graciously, he has uh, allowed me to do that. <laughs> um, but you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. And while you do, I would just like to reiterate that again, that I, I love church. And um, I don't say that to sound you know, super spiritual or to sound really Christian or holy or something like that. I just, I love church. I've grown up in church both my dad and then both of my grandfathers were pastors at various times in their lives. So you could say I grew up in church, or I like to say that Sunday school is in my DNA. It's just part of who I am. It's, I don't question what happens on Sundays. It's You go to church. It's just natural. And all that time, though, spent in church, I think it has afforded me sort of um, an ability to grasp a lot about what uh, goes on in church, how to do church, things of that nature. And Also, uh, the diversity of church. You know, we we can look across even this uh, auditorium tonight. There's a lot that's different between us, and yet we are gathered under one roof. There's students, and there's there's, uh, parents, there's grandparents, there's there's infants, and there's children, and there's young people, and there's older people. Um, (laughs) There's people from different families and different backgrounds. There's different occupations and hobbies and beliefs and interests. And we could go on and on down the line. There's a lot that's different about us in this room tonight. But obviously, besides all that difference, I believe it or not, there's actually only two types of people that go to church. You can really narrow it down into two categories. Even with everyone here, we all into fit into one of these categories. And these categories, I believe, are perfectly displayed and sort of juxtaposed for us in Luke chapter 18. This is, of course, um, at the beginning, Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the publican. This is in verses 9 through 14. I'm just going to read that really quick. Luke 18, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather 
than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Let's pray really quick and ask God's time blessing on this time. Lord, we thank you that we can be here tonight. Lord, we are so appreciative of this time and this freedom that we have to open your word and learn about the various ways that you have come and met us. Lord, I pray that you would meet us now in this hour, that you would, Lord, embolden me, but enlarge our hearts to hear from you, not from me, but from your spirit. I thank you, God, for all the blessings you give us. Give us a blessing in this time. In your name I pray. Amen. So Jesus wasn't one to mince words. Jesus wasn't a guy that beat around the bush. He gets right to the point uh, as he opens up this parable. He says, uh, two men went up into the temple to pray. Now, this obviously was something that those in earshot would be very familiar with. They would be familiar with this um, idea of going up into the temple. Obviously, you know, the temple was on the mount in the city of Jerusalem. They would be familiar with that practice. But I think what is even more uh, worthy of our note is just what uh, Luke says right before in verse 9, where he says, And he spake this parable unto certain men which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's very important to know. I think that's really the key in understanding this whole uh, story that Jesus is about to tell. This is the crucial detail because you see that Jesus is about to talk to Pharisees about Pharisees. He, he wasn't going to shy away about speaking to them and about them in front of their faces. Certain men which trusted in themselves. And as Christ here contrasts these two men, this Pharisee and this publican going to pray, I think we will find our two churchgoers. As Jesus contrasts these two men, we will find the two types of people that go to church. And first of all, in this contrast, we have to notice the contrast of the form of their prayers. How they pray, how these two men pray, reveals a lot about their character. And you'll notice in verses 11 and 12 that this Pharisee, he prays very, very pompously. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So this is this Pharisee's prayer. He is an arrogant man, a haughty man, and he is a proud man. I imagine him standing close to the altar. I imagine him, if it were like this room, he would be standing right in front of this podium, making sure that people could see him. He was proud, and he was praying loudly, and he was in front of the temple, and he was also not just at the, uh, at the close at, near the front of the temple, but he was away from everyone else, I imagine him. He was, he was standing close, and he was stood by himself, it says. He, he thought himself to be better than the other people that were there with him that day. He was almost saying, don't come near me because I'm holier than you are. And that's why he was praying by himself. But I also not just imagine him praying by himself. I imagine him praying very, uh, you know, loftily or very loudly. You know, uh, God, I thank thee. He, he was trying to draw attention to himself. He was trying to make sure that everyone notices just how good of a prayer he is. <laughs> how, he was trying to make sure everyone noticed how, how religious he was. And just like what Jesus also describes the Pharisees back in Matthew chapter 6, where he says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. 
For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. And that's what this Pharisee was doing. He wasn't really praying. He was praying to be seen by the other people. He was praying to almost say, look at me. Look at how holy I am and look at how good I'm praying. He was praying to be seen of men. And he thought much of himself this prayer and this, so his whole attitude really drips of egotism and self-interest, as it were. And I, th- I think also by detaching himself from the other people that were there that day, he was, he was disconnecting himself from the, the sort of common cries of repentance. People were going into the temple to pray to God to have mercy on them, but he reckoned himself too good for God's mercy. He reckoned himself that he was already righteous in his own estimation. He says, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Look, God, at what I am doing for your name. And in his eyes, he was already right with God. He was coming to God saying, look, I deserve your favor. Look at what I have done to deserve you. And he commits the biggest travesty that we can all commit. The biggest travesty that each one of us can commit is failing to see just how incredibly needy we are. And just like this Pharisee, I have to admit, I too am often very prideful and and prideful and blind enough to admit that I am desperate. And by not wanting to admit that I'm desperate, I thereby create a barrier between me and God. Because you see, God only works with desperation. He only works with hearts that know they are needy. And pride is the barrier that disconnects us from God. And uh, arrogance and pride, this, as this Pharisee was thereby uh, showing, it causes you to forget that desperation. It causes you to forget just how needy you are of Christ. You see, you don't just need saving grace. You need eye-opening grace. You need eye-opening grace to show you that you need saving grace. And this is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, you see, because he reminds us of our need. He reminds us that we are desperate. We are beggars. And we're not only desperate for God's redemption, we are desperate to be cognizant, to be made known of the fact that we need that redemption. We are so blind, and the Spirit helps us with our blindness. This Pharisee, he was prideful. He prays pomplessly. And contrast that with this publican. In verse 13 it says, And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This publican is praying very contritely. In much contrast to the Pharisee, he stands far away from God's altar. He stands at the back of the temple. He doesn't lift up his eyes towards heaven. And I think he surely knew both the grand and the infinite holiness, not only of this place, but he knew the infinite wickedness of his life. He knew he didn't deserve to be there. The publican doesn't even count himself worthy to be in the presence of God. Of the Lord. And I think we fail to often realize the gravity of what's going on here, the gravity, the weight of the scene. This is a publican. A publican was a tax collector. 
Remember the story of Zacchaeus. He, the wee little man, was a wicked little man. They were legendary. Publicans were legendary for their dishonesty and were notoriously despised. They were employed. They were empowered by the Roman government. They were representative of that government and they would secure rights to an occupying force of Rome by raising taxes on those people that they were living with. And think of it uh, sort of like this, as your neighbor taxing and taking your money to pay for the very soldiers and men who were responsible for the murder and rape and pillaging of your own neighborhood. That's the same idea as this uh, publican. Doubly hated, publicans sold out their friends for dollars, taking well above what was regulated to fill their own pockets. They were greedy, wicked men. They were outcasts. They were pariahs. They were social lepers. And I imagine that this publican, as he stood there that day, he was not only just ashamed, he was maybe even a little embarrassed. (laughs) Embarrassed to even go there, embarrassed to be there. He probably snuck in the back, and that's why he stood far away. He must have known that he didn't belong. I also imagine him, I also like to imagine him thinking about what he was going to (laughs) say. What do you think he was thinking about in that moment? And and I, I don't know what he was thinking about, but all the words that were coming were just, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or I'm reminded of the the verse in Ezra chapter 9 where it says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for my iniquities are increased over my head and my trespasses grown up to the heavens. (laughs) That's what he was no doubt thinking about, that his, his iniquities were infinite going up to the heavens. And maybe this publican had been ridiculed. Maybe he had been... Um, ridiculed by some of the scribes that were even there in the temple that day. Perhaps he was even lied about, uh, lied to about, about God, that the, only the good ones were welcomed. And so that's why he comes and he's just hoping for a sliver of a piece of God's mercy, mercy a sliver for a scrap of grace, that he would be accepted, and that he would be heard. He prays very contritely. But not, not only the form of their prayers, but notice now also the substance of their prayers. Because not only how they pray, but what they pray about reveals a lot about their heart. This applies to us today. A lot of what we pray about will reveal what's in our hearts. This Pharisee, he prays, and his prayer is very pious. <laughs> Let me read it to you again, verse 11. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. What do you notice about his prayer? I should say his prayer, so-called. It's not much of a prayer. This is really just a reiteration, a listing sort of of his accomplishments. He's, He's telling God, he's reporting to God what he has done. He's reporting his works. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I, I, I. He's talking about himself. I fast twice in the week, he announces. And this is uh, contrary to what the Old Testament law ordained. It didn't ordain this much fasting. It didn't ordain 104 fasts in a year. 
there was only one fast a year ordained by the Old Testament law, which was on the Day of Atonement. So this Pharisee was going above and beyond even God's ordained holy law to try and earn God's favor. He's going above what God had commanded to say almost this, that, look, God, I got this. I am doing it. I am righteous. Don't you see all that I'm doing? He rattles off his religious resume, so to speak, and he's boasting in his morality, his appearance of religion, we might say, and he brags over his purity. I fast twice in the week. He compares himself. Did you notice that he compares himself? And I love who he compares himself to. This is a religious man. And he says, I'm not like the extortioners or the adulterers or those that steal. I'm not even like this publican. I'm not like the murderers. I'm not like those who have uh, sex outside of marriage. I'm not like those people. Obviously, he might have looked, quote unquote, better than them. But he compares himself To these people and saying, I'm not as bad as that guy. Sometimes we do that too, don't we? I do that. I'm not as bad as that guy. Look, he went off and ran off with another woman. I didn't do that. But I'm just as sinful in my heart. Because you see, the standard of God's holiness isn't um, found in comparing ourselves to fellow sinners. The barometer of God's kingdom isn't comparative obedience. It's the unblemished obedience of Christ. That's the measure of the kingdom. That's the measure of God's law. Because as remember what Christ said in Matthew chapter 5? He says this, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That's the culmination of the law. Basically Jesus is saying, If you want to try and get to heaven by your works, that's the measure. Perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. 100% perfect. 24-7-365. That's the measure. That's the standard. So our only measuring stick to this rule of righteousness is Christ himself. That's the measure. This prayer is... (laughs) It's not a prayer. It's not a prayer at all. There's nothing worshipful. There's nothing thankful. There's nothing grateful about this prayer at all. The whole thing completely ignores Christ. All it is is the Pharisee talking about himself, getting the attention on him. And never once does he request anything from God. He is just describing how good he is. (laughs) And that's not prayer. Prayer is is really just the crying out of a beggarly heart to a generous God. It's realizing all of your emptiness, and it's clinging to Christ's fullness. And this Pharisee thought he was full of righteousness, but as Christ elsewhere said, I imagine that he was just full of dead men's bones. He was just a whitewashed tomb. John Bunyan even goes to say this. John Bunyan comments on this parable, and he says, The Pharisee's righteousness is worth nothing. His prayer is worth nothing. His thanks to God are worth nothing. For that, what he had was scanty and imperfect. And it was his pride that made him offer it to God for acceptance. It was worth nothing, but still he offered it to God. He was trying to say, God, accept me because of what I have done. Because of who I am. He's boasting in his piety. But contrast that now with the publican. 
The publican's prayer is not pious at all. It's very, very penitential. Look at verse 13. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was beating his chest, and thereby he was displaying a very sincere sorrow, a very sincere contrition of his heart. He was honest about his state. He knew his unworthiness, and he knew the sort of criminal that he was. He was a robber. He was a thief. And this, this publican, he doesn't make excuse for his sin. Oh, this person made me do this. My parents, they brought me up like this. They didn't give me a good upbringing. Or, remember, Adam, it's this woman you gave me, Lord. He wasn't making excuse for his sin. He didn't look for someone to put it the blame on. Rather, he just pleads for some sort of scrap of mercy, some sort of shred of God's loving kindness. His prayer is short, but yet it is the fullest prayer of a sinner ever spoken. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or we might say with David, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And I believe that this prayer ought to be the prayer of every believer in this room even now. Whether you're 5 or whether you're 50 or whether you're 85, the only prayer of a Christian is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You never graduate from that. You never go beyond that very need. That's the core of what God wants us to see. This ought to be our prayer, a prayer of humility and honesty and the realization that this person and as we are we are lifeless and hopeless without Christ but hastening on because not only does the form and not only does the substance reveal something about them it reveals also the differing in the consequences of their prayers because you see after their time in the temple that day the Pharisee and the publican met two very different ends you see the Pharisee is condemned notice what he says in verse 14 I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This man, the publican, went down justified rather than the Pharisee. He departs from the temple and he's confident in himself. And he's confident that, look, I've done all these things, so I'm, I'm good enough. I don't have to do anything else. And he departs confident, but yet he is condemned. And he doesn't even know it. That's the saddest thing. He leaves thinking he's righteous, but yet he is condemned to hell because he is confident in his own self-righteousness. Because you see, beyond Jesus' affirmation of the publican's uh, repentance is the reality of the Pharisee's hopeless state of disapproval. He is not accepted. Because you see, by handing his religious resume to God, the Pharisee is trying to make God his debtor. He's saying, God, you owe me. I deserve this. I've done this. Now give me that. He's making God a debtor. But you see, when you come to church, it's not, it's not a time for a transaction where you give something and God give, gives you something. It's a time when we receive. I'll get to that in a minute. By handing God his religious resume, the Pharisee tried to make God his debtor. And that's why he goes away condemned. Because you see, justification, to be justified, means to realize your own spiritual bankruptcy. It means you have to realize that you have nothing to put forth that uh, measures up to what God deserves. 
It means putting your faith in Christ. And that also means renouncing your righteousness, the righteousness you think you have. (laughs) And this takes a lifetime to learn. No one is able to master the idea that they are spiritually bankrupt. One writer said it this way, One of the hardest lessons for man to learn is that everything that God does for us is by grace. Man is so eager to have some credit for his blessings that it is difficult for him to admit his spiritual bankruptcy. We're so eager to think that we have something to offer God that makes him uh, give us his favor. And God is telling you, you are bankrupt without me. It isn't natural for us to admit how ruined we are, how needy we are. It goes against sort of the American way of, um, of, of live strong and being courageous. We don't want to admit that we are ruined. It goes against all the societal norms to own up to the fact that you are falling short, that you're not measuring up, and in actuality, you are just flat broke. But it's only through the open admission of these things that we are ever welcome into God's family. That we are ever open or welcome into God's arms. You see, relying on your performance won't get you into heaven. It will only leave you wanting. That's what this Pharisee met that day. He wasn't condemned. Or excuse me, he was condemned. But as we'll see, the publican goes away justified. Verse 14 again, the publican Or excuse me, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. This day, we saw, or these people saw a, a, a very powerful paradox of grace. Because you see, an outwardly flawless man was turned away. He was condemned, but an outwardly wicked man and wrecked man was accepted. How does that make sense? It makes sense because of the gospel. Because of what Jesus Christ did for publicans like this man. And for publicans like us. For wicked people like you and like me. Because you see the publican departed with God's favor simply because he boasted only in the Father's mercy. And not on anything he did. He knew the violence of his heart. He knew his wickedness. He knew his criminality. And he wasn't trying to pretend anything different. He knew that his only hope was the Father's mercy. And that's where he put it. And the Pharisee departed, condemned, and the publican walked away justified, cleared of the guilt that he didn't try to hide. And you see, this is, this is where we come to the wonder and the majesty and the beauty of God's grace, is that its very objects are those who are unrighteous. The miracle of this gospel that we have in this book before us tonight is that we who are his enemies are made his friends. And I would actually hasten to say that we are made even better his children. His enemies are made his children. As it says in Romans 5, 4, when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, Jesus didn't come for the perfect people. He didn't come for the prestigious people, for the pious people, for those who boast in what they were doing and what they were trying to uh, make God see that he owed them. Jesus comes for sinners. 
Real sinners, depraved sinners, corrupt sinners. Christ came to lead those who were living in the rags and in the rubble of their own sin to to repentance and redemption. And so it is that just like this publican, that owning your sin and outing yourself a sinner isn't a reason for despair. It's actually a reason for hope. Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So if you can't admit that you're a sinner, then what are you doing here tonight? What are you doing listening to the gospel? Because the gospel is for sinners. The prime suspects of this gospel are those who think they are unfit for it. And this Pharisee stood before God and he claimed audaciously and arrogantly and he demanded God to be favoring of him. He demanded entrance. But God is not interested in that sort of spiritual riches as we've already seen. God is interested in your spiritual poverty. I like what Spurgeon says about this. He says, bring your spiritual poverty before God and not your supposed wealth. Because if you think you have a single penny of your own, get rid of it. Perfect poverty alone will discharge you from your bankruptcy. If you have a moldy crust in the cupboard of self-righteousness, no bread from heaven will be yours. Because you see, you must be nothing and nobody if God is to be your all in all. (laughs) You must be nothing and you must be nobody. Because this is where we come to it. These are the only two types of churchgoers that we have. The people that come to church are either fakers or they are fugitives. Fakers are sinners who revel in their religious resumes on what they do for God. They're like this Pharisee. They come to church deluded by their goodness and they hope that other Christians see how good and how devoted and how quote-unquote Christian they are. They cross the threshold of church buildings and they aren't looking for God to show them something. They're looking to show God something. They're fakers. But the other type of people that come to church are fugitives. They are sinners who know that they are wicked. And they come to the church knowing how much they need God. And like this publican, not persisting in some sort of pretend righteousness that they've made up, they surrender as penitent fugitives who are ready to cease their running. They're ready to stop running and they're ready to rest in Christ. And that leads us to this great truth, which is the fact that everyone who comes into church is a sinner. Regardless of how think or how much you think you are good or how much you think you've done for God in the week, you come to church as a sinner. You come to church, uh, you need to come to church ready to receive. Because you see, the gospel is addressed to sinners. We, sometimes I think we think that the gospel that Jesus Christ crucified is for lost people. It's for them out there. We need to go preach it to them, the lost people. The gospel isn't for lost people. The gospel is for sinners. <laughs> for us. For everyone in the world. That's who it's for. Everyone is a sinner. And if you can't admit that, again, I ask you, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you coming into church for? Because you see, God knows all the deepest, darkest secrets of your heart. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows 
all the things you try and keep hidden, the things you locked away. He knows the, the times when you come to church really angry at your wife or at your husband or at your kids, and then you walk through the door smiling because you want to pretend that everything's okay, that everything's put together. He knows all those things that you keep locked away. And your only option to come to church really is as a needy, as a spent beggar in need of grace and rest. We mustn't come to church, you know, white-knuckling our religious resume. Look at all I've done for you, God. Look at my accomplishments. I fast twice in the week. I've memorized 21 verses in three days. I've read all of the Old Testament. I have the Pentateuch memorized. Look at what I've done. That doesn't mean anything to God. We often come to church as if God owes us something. That we come to church with an air of piety because of the goodness we think we have. But that will leave us exactly like this Pharisee condemned. Instead, as the Puritan writer Thomas Adam once wrote, we can only come to Christ with a catalog of sins in our hands. (laughs) No religious resumes here. A catalog of sins. And I have to confess that I don't always do this. I'm not going to make you raise your hands because I imagine you do this as well. But I don't come to church all the time thinking that I'm a sinner in need of this message. I come to church thinking, oh, I'm going to sing in the choir. I'm going to play my trumpet. I'm going to maybe sing a special. Maybe I'm going to even preach. And people are going to see me and see how spiritual I am. People are going to see how Christian I can be. And all I'm doing is just filling my religious resume and flaunting it before God. And God, I think, looks down in disgust. I think he spits that out of his mouth. See, if I come to church needing to be seen, needing to be noticed, I've put that horrible taste in God's mouth. And instead, I think he would rather you come to church as a battered, as a broken, as a bruised sinner than with your shiny veneers of righteousness. (laughs) Do you think that you can impress God? Do you think that, that God, when he sees your awesome Sunday school lesson, that he is impressed? Or do you think that he is impressed by your voice when you sing a special Or that you did the ushering really, really good that day or whatever. (laughs) No, you don't come to church to impress God. You come to church to be impressed by Him. By the amazing uh, truth of the fact that God Himself, the Creator, the Sovereign Ruler of the universe, would condescend to such filthy, wretched sinners like you and I. I can't believe that it would be any other way. The only way that we can come to church is as we are. Empty and broken and desperate. We are desperate for the Father's loving. We are desperate for the Son's rescuing. And we are desperate for the Spirit's filling. But either way, we are desperate. We come to church needy. And it's only understood, salvation is only understood by those who are in tune with how much they need. Jesus. The church isn't a place to show off. We can't impress God. It's not a place to show off. It's, it's not, the church is a place for sinners to be rescued and Christians to be reoriented by the very same amazing grace. The amazing grace that we sing of so fondly. The reason you're allowed here at all 
is because Jesus has atoned for your sin, the past, present, and future. And he tore down that veil that separated us from the Father. That's why we are here, and we're here to be reminded of that, or we're here to be uh, told that for the very first time. You see, the gospel informs us that everything we do in this place is to be drenched in that same gospel. It's to be soaked in the fact that grace is the only reason why we're here, and grace enough to the fact that we shouldn't care if we get seen or if we get noticed. We should do things in this church. We should serve in this church not to be seen of men, not to be praised, not to be recognized, not to have your name called out, but only to magnify the name of Christ, to exalt what he has done, not what you are doing. The point of church isn't what you do for God. It is God for you. As it says in Romans over and over again, this isn't a place for you to show off how worshipful you can be. It's for you to realize how frail and feeble you are. In the face of a faithful God, we'll never truly know how good God is until we first know how bad we are. We have to realize just how desperate we are, as this publican surely knew. And until we see that there's no one that's good, we've all turned away from the Father, and we've all sinned and fallen short of his glory, we'll never revel in his rescue. And until we see that we are dead in trespasses and sins, and that in us dwelleth no good thing, as it says in Romans, we'll never relish God's saving mercy. And until we see ourselves as we really are, by the Spirit's direction, we'll never be who we're called to be. And until we accept the fact that we are not righteous, that we are not pulling this off, that we'll never be able to rejoice in the freeness of God's rescue of us. And unless we know that we are honestly nothing, that we are spiritually bankrupt, as this publican knew, Unless we know that we are just spent fugitives on the run, we will never know that we are loved. And as it says in Romans chapter 3, that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is the only way that we can be accepted at all. It's to come to the fact and the realization that we own nothing, we have nothing. I'll leave you with this where one writer says it this way. The way to exaltation is through the understanding of our own nothingness. It is through the acceptance of all things as coming from the grace of God. The sinner who acknowledges his own sinfulness and throws himself on the grace of God is the one who will reach heaven. That reminds me of what Jesus says as he closes this parable where he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And that leads us to this line of questioning, because naturally we must inventory our own hearts. What are you banking on? What am I banking on? Am I banking on my religious resume because I'm so good and holy and spiritual? Am I banking on what I am doing, or am I relying on God's redemption of me? Am I relying on Jesus Christ for me? Are you a faker this evening? Or are you a fugitive? You see, the good news is that it it doesn't really matter. (laughs) Because for both of you, Christ is waiting for you. Christ is ready for you to come and fall into his arms. For both of you, 
Grace is...